The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good to see you all. Uh, so before we get started, um, everyone knows, of course, this past Friday was uh, September 11th, and um, I, what's weird is this is a, a younger crowd, so many of you guys weren't even born yet, or you don't remember it, um, but I'll never forget that fateful day. Um, I was sitting in, in seminary class when the professor announced what had just happened, and uh, it seemed like everyone knew somebody that was connected to it, and I was actually living with a guy, uh, one of my roommates, who um, he lost his best friend, who was a firefighter and fell in one of the towers, and so that hit close to home, and then a childhood friend of mine was in the Pentagon that day, and I called him that night to make sure he was okay, and he was. But as the last 19 years has progressed, this has also become a weekend where we really honor our first responders. And so I want to do that today, um, tonight, and pray for the ones that are here. And so um, if you're a first responder, so EMS, EMT, police officers, uh, firefighters, if you could stand. Um, I know we have at least a couple here in the back, even one that's retired, Shane, so you need to stand up. Here we go. Um, but we've got at least one here in the back, I know, and I know Shane served for many years in Austin in that same role. And so I want to pray for the ones that are here, but also pray for the ones that are not in this room at the moment. Obviously, with what's happened recently in our culture, especially police officers coming under fire and coming under scrutiny, and so I want to pray for them that they can bear up under that um, as they deal with those kinds of pressures in our culture right now. So let's just pray for these guys and the ones that are not here this evening as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the way that these men and women serve our community and our city. And I know that many of us take for granted the, the sacrifice that they, that, they, um, that they have, that they have to go through to serve in these roles. And God, in many ways, it reflects the way that you sacrificed yourself, sacrificed your own life for us on our behalf. And these men and women step into danger all the time, risking their lives so that um, justice can be served so that, um, so that really you can be glorified. And go, God, we thank you for these servants and the ways that they carry out and, and tie their faith into what they're doing. We pray that you'd give them wisdom. We pray that you'd give them discernment as they have to make snap judgment decisions much of the time. And we pray, God, that they would feel uh, just encouraged and appreciated by the body of Christ, especially right now, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's give those guys a hand. So we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. And I don't know if we're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible, but 1 Corinthians is one of those for me. Uh, there's just so much in this book for today's church. And so not only that, today's section is one of my favorite sections of the book. So I better not mess this up tonight. Uh, in seminary, um, they would let us choose which book you want to do a paper on in certain classes, and I chose 1 Corinthians every chance I got. I went back and read those papers, and they still aren't very good. But um, this book has always captured me, and I've always loved 1 Corinthians and, and studying this book. So a little bit of background again. Uh, Paul helped plant this church in Corinth. He spent about a year and a half there. And now about five years later, um, he is in Ephesus, and he's writing 1 Corinthians to them. Now, 1 Corinthians wasn't his first letter to the Corinthians. There was another letter that was lost, so we really could have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corinthians had that letter been preserved, but it wasn't. And so this young church wrote back to Paul asking him all kinds of questions about their church, 
And 1 Corinthians is his his response letter back to them, and these are his answers. This is why the book takes on this laundry list feel, and Paul's addressing so many different issues in this letter to the Corinthians. But one of the biggest issues in the first three chapters is division about leadership. Chase addressed this in, I think, week one and week two. There is disunity about who is the best uh, leader and teacher in the congregation, and I think this highlights a modern problem we have today, and it's the problem of consumer Christianity. And I think we see it all over our culture today. So what is consumerism? How do you define consumerism? Whenever you think about the economy and the relationship that you and I have to companies, usually we operate like this. A company exists to produce goods and services for me, for my benefit and my enjoyment, and at the moment they stop doing that, then I'm going to take my business somewhere else. So I think about um, a couple years ago, my wife and I had planned this vacation with our kids, and we had saved airline miles, and uh, for like eight years, we're going to spend them all on this one trip. And so we decided to take the kids to Bermuda. And so we're going to go to DFW and fly out, connecting flight in Miami and then on to Bermuda. And the, the way this thing was going to play out the, the Miami layover was like an hour long, so there's no room for air. So we're in DFW waiting for our flight to head to Miami. And the flight's getting delayed, and we're getting worried. Are we going to make our connecting flight? And we finally get on the plane. We think we're going to make it. And then they come on the loudspeaker and say, this plane is having mechanical issues. And so we have to deplane, go back into the terminal. And so now we know we're going to miss our connecting flight. We're going to spend the night in Miami, and we're going to miss one day of our trip. And so I'm making phone calls, making a connecting flight for the next day. And so um, they find a plane for us. We get on that plane, and we get on the second plane, and it's just blazing hot inside this plane. I mean, people are sweating. People are fanning their faces. And then they get everyone on the plane. They shut the door. They close the door, and they say, this plane is having some AC issues. We've got to deplane from this plane now. So we get off that plane, go back into the terminal again, and we're now on our third plane for this trip. And so we're so frustrated, we finally get on the third plane, we make it to Miami, we spend the night there, the next day we fly out to Bermuda, and the trip was, itself was great. And so now we're on the tarmac, about to leave Bermuda and head back to Texas, and our return flight's going to go from Bermuda to D.C., then DFW, and I'm on the tarmac in Bermuda, and I get a text message that says, your flight from D.C. to DFW has been canceled. You've got to book another flight. And so I'm on the app trying to get it before we take off, and I finally booked the flight, and so I think we're good. And then we get to D.C., and they come on the loudspeaker, and they say, well, there's some weather around the D.C. airport, so we've got to circle for an hour. And so we're circling the airport, which means we're going to miss our connecting flight again in D.C., right? And so we finally land, and we're so frustrated. We go to the desk and say, we've got to book a flight for tomorrow now, or now we're staying the night in D.C. again. And um, we booked the flight, and we're going to go to the hotel. So we go to the hotel. I'm looking on the app on my phone, and I'm realizing my flights aren't updating. So the new flight I was going to be on isn't showing up on my phone. So I begin to get kind of worried. So I call the airline, and I said, am I really on this flight tomorrow? And they said, "Uh, sir, we can't find your tickets. And so they have to rebook this thing. And so we're on hold for like an hour and a half, and it's this big ordeal, and it's now 1.30 in the morning. And so after this whole ordeal, and I won't mention the airline. I don't want to disparage anybody. But 
how excited do you think I would be to fly with this particular airline ever again? Not very excited, right? And for most of us, if we have those kinds of interactions in the business world or in the, the economic world, there's a real good chance we're going to take our business elsewhere, right? And so if they don't meet our needs, we go somewhere else. And so I think this consumeristic mindset, here's how it affects us in the church. We begin to see the, the church's job is to produce spiritual goods and services for my benefit or enjoyment, and if I don't like something, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And I think what's happening is this mindset begins to form us spiritually. And so I think what can happen is that we don't realize that consumers might be good for the economy, but it's often bad for the church because we don't realize how it's forming us spiritually and how it's affecting us in our walks with God. So if we begin to see our relationship to the church as just a transactional relationship, like a restaurant or a business, we're going to miss out on the true purpose of the church and how God wants us to view the church. This really gets challenged later on when in this book, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and he refers to the church like a human body. And so our relationships here shouldn't be these, these just transactional relationships. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 12 that you are, you are part of the body of Christ, interwoven together, just like a human body. It's not meant to be this transactional, what can you do for me kind of relationship. So consumer Christianity isn't just a modern issue, it's also an ancient one, and we see it in this church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So one of the big debates with the letter to, to, to the Corinthians, people ask the question, were these believers or were they unbelievers? And I would say they were believers because Paul calls them brothers, showing he considers them to be believers. So far in the letter, Paul has said there are two kinds of people in the world. They're spiritual and natural, saved and unsaved. Now he says there are two kinds of saved people. There's mature and immature. And he calls them believers. But he says they're immature in their faith. Now we would expect a young Christian to be immature. And it's been a few years since Paul had planted this church. But they really should be further along than they are. Now, I don't have to tell you this. You know this to be true already. We live in a don't judge me world. That little quote in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, is misused all the time and known by every Christian and non-Christian alike. It's probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. But in the church today, we don't mind judging the world out there, but we rarely look at ourselves and examine ourselves. Later in this book, Paul is going to say that we have this reversed. We, leave, we should leave judging the world to God, but we should, we should look at ourselves. We should examine ourselves, not in a self-righteous way, but from a place of love. And so this is what Paul is doing as he's addressing the many issues this church has. Paul is saying, I think you're saved, but right now your lives don't look like that. We live in a world where if someone is technically saved, nobody can is allowed to speak into their life or 
evaluate or try to help without being called judgmental or self-righteous. So Paul's trying to speak into their lives about where they're at in their maturity. I think we are too content to remain in spiritual infancy much of our lives. You might say it like this. The Christian life is the only life where we mask our immaturity under the banner of grace, but grace should fuel our growth, not stump our growth. Grace should should cause us to grow, not keep us from growing. But I think so many of us have this, this wrong view of what grace is and don't allow it to be the fuel that helps us grow in our walk with God. Now, we don't put up with immaturity in other areas of our lives, do we? So I think of my own kids. I mean, kids do some crazy things, especially when they're really, really small. So when I think of uh, my daughter, she is, um, when she was uh, just starting to crawl, and, and listen, for those that are not parents yet, when, you're, when your kid starts crawling is when life gets scary. When they become mobile and can put things in their mouth that you don't know about, it becomes really frightening as a parent. So my daughter was just starting to crawl, learn how to crawl, and, and I'm watching her. My wife's at work, and so I'm watching the kids, and I look over at my daughter, Sienna, and she has this look on her face like there's something in her mouth. And I go over to her, and I squeeze her little fat cheeks, and her mouth opens up, and out crawls out this massive cockroach. And so I'm horrified. I think I used an entire bottle of mouthwash on her that day. And I think it took me about a week to tell my wife what really happened. Now, she, she turns 10 in a couple of days. So if she's still doing that at her 10th birthday party, we're going to have some issues, right? Because we expect kids to be immature when they're young and immature, but we expect growth. We expect them to grow. And the same should be true for us spiritually. If a mother sees her child isn't growing at the right pace, she's concerned, She calls the doctor. And this is what Paul's doing. Paul has the same interests with these Corinthian people. He's not being judgmental. He he wants them to grow and mature in their faith. So when Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, what does that mean exactly? What is he saying when he says that? Well, milk is like Christianity 101. Many of you guys are in college. You know what 101 means. It's like the basics. So solid food would be more advanced, like 401, right? And, and Paul is saying, you aren't living out the basics very well. I want to give you the meat, but you're still spitting up the milk. It's, it's been a few years, five years to be exact, since he has seen them. And in this letter, he has to address some basic things like disunity and division and sexual immorality and getting drunk off communion wine. They were getting drunk off the communion wine. They're filing lawsuits against each other. So Paul's having to address some pretty basic things, things they should already know. And Paul is asking, why are these things your biggest dilemma as a church? Your problems should be things like, how do we disciple all these new converts? How do we clothe and feed the poor? How do we help people use their spiritual gifts in this body of believers? Those are the dilemmas of a, of a mature people. You know, as a, I work primarily with high school students, and so when 
there's this red flag statement I've heard over the years here. And when I hear a student say this, I consider it a red flag statement. And parents, listen in on this. When a student says this, I already know all this stuff. That is a red flag statement. I can see the images, the the kids' faces over the years that have said that statement either to me or to their parents, and then their parents told me they said that, and it has never turned out well because there's a lot of pride in that statement. And it's usually this person that says that, that says, hey, all the milk stuff, I got that, I'm good. Give me the meat, give me the good stuff, give me the substance. It's usually that, that person, they might know the basics, but they're not living the basics out all that well. And it's often that we'll, you'll find out even years later that during that time when they were saying that, they were struggling, had some intense struggles with certain sins in their life. And so Paul is coming to these people saying, you're not living out the basics very well. And you want me to give you the meat? It, it does no good to give someone meat when they're still spitting up the milk. And so Paul's addressing that with the church. Look down at the next statement at the end of verse two. And even now you are not yet ready. It's been five years since Paul has seen these people. So we would expect a young Christian to act like a young Christian, but now it's been five years and now he's saying, and you're still doing these things. And even now you're not ready for the, for the meat. You are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So now Paul tells him why he calls him immature. And he says, exhibit A, you're dealing with jealousy and strife. You see, Paul and Apollos were, were very different people. And based on their gift set, people began to hold them up almost like idols. And Paul is saying, no, listen, we're not the point. Stop putting me and Apollos on a pedestal and worshiping us. We're not the point. You see, following a leader or a teacher should never trump following Christ. Now, is it wrong to appreciate or honor or show love to leaders? No, it's not wrong to do that. But we should not let them replace Jesus. Is there only one teacher or preacher that you listen to? Is there only one Christian author, one or two Christian authors that you read? And in your mind, you would say, well, if it's not this person, I just, I just can't learn and grow. If that's the case, and you might be suffering from what the Corinthians were suffering from, I think what's, what's interesting is in the digital world today, we have access to more people than ever, but we still just compare everybody and pick one or two and, and tune everyone else out, and it leads to this really narrow tribalism. This person is right about everything, and everyone else is wrong, and somehow that's always the person that I follow. I once heard Pastor David Platt say, he said, something in my theology is wrong. I just don't know what it is. I think that's a nice way of saying, 
don't follow me too closely. I'm, I'm wrong about something. I just don't really know what it is. I'll find out later what it is. But all of us are wrong about something. We can't prop up pastors and theologians and writers and big-time conference speakers as, and put these people on a pedestal. That's what was happening here in, in Corinth. What happens when they do that, Paul calls them out and says, are you not being merely human? So catch, understand the play on words here, because following after mere men leads us to live like just mere men. You become what you worship. So Paul's confronting that in these people. What do most of us say whenever we make a mistake or fall into sin? What do we say? We say, I'm only what? I'm only human. But when you and I have the spirit, we're more than that because he's dwelling in us. So Paul is calling them to live in the power of the spirit. And if there are factions and divisions in any body of believers, there is evidence that we're not doing that. So there's this interesting play on words that I want you to see in verses one and three. In verse one and three, the word flesh is in both of those passages, but it's a little bit of a different word. And in verse one, it's sarkinos, which, is, which means composed of flesh. And in verse three, it's one letter off, sarkikos, which is, looks like flesh. So if you have something that's genuine leather that's made of leather then you have something that's imitation or, or not leather but it looks like leather that would be like looks like leather looks like flesh and that's the play on words here and what Paul is saying he's saying I'm not saying you're unsaved but your life looks like someone who's not and so I've had to talk to you in verse one as if you're someone who's not saved although I believe you're saved you're just an immature believer. And so I'm talking to you like this because you should be more mature than what your life is showing as a church. And then look at verse five. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So in these, in these verses, Paul answers the question, how should leaders and teachers be viewed by the congregation? How should Paul and Apollos be viewed by the church at Corinth? And his answer, I think, is pretty profound. His answer is that you should view us like farmers, I like to tell people that um, I grew up around the Washington, D.C. area because it sounds cooler than where I actually did grow up, which is in the, in the rural part of Virginia. And Because uh, the reality is I grew up on a farm. My grandfather was a farmer, and we lived just down the road from him. And farming life is simple. It's not impressive. It's not flashy. But there is a lot of hard work and dedication, but it's not a flashy occupation. And my grandfather um, just exemplified this. My grandfather wore the same outfit every day. My grandparents had this thing, for you young people, um, may not know what this is, this thing called a clothesline. 
and it was at, on their property, and I could see the clothes on the clothesline from my house down the road. And my grandfather had the same, he had 13 of the same outfit on the clothesline. It was a blue shirt and like this jean overalls and he had a bunch of those. And my grandmother would put them on the clothesline, line the whole thing up with the same, he wore the same outfit every single day. He wasn't this impressive, flashy person. He was dedicated, he was hardworking, but he wasn't, this impressive person in that way. Every year he would till the field and plant a crop and all he could do is just pray for rain. He's at the mercy of the elements. And now when, it, when a crop grows, do, do we sing the praises of the farmer? No, we don't see them as special. They just put some seed in the ground and put some water on it and miraculously it just grows. We recognize that when it comes to farming, Right? The same is true of pastoring and shepherding. We tend to look at, especially these big churches, you know, sermons and sermon preparation as this big, glorious thing. And according to Paul, this is what it is. It's simply just, whenever I prepare a sermon or anyone up here on the stage prepares a sermon and teaches it, we're, we're just doing this. A little bit of water on a seed. Whenever you go and prepare a Bible study or a small group discussion or go meet with someone, counsel them at Starbucks, that's really what you're doing. You're just, you're just pouring some water on a seed. Some of you in here, you are seed planters, and some of you all water, but it's God who causes the growth. One of the traps that we can fall into as preachers and teachers is that we think the power lies in our own words, and it doesn't. Because God causes the growth. And it's really a miracle, and we can't explain it. So if pastoring and shepherding is more like farm work, pastors should be more like farmers than like rock stars. One of the things that I appreciate about Gary who was a pastor here for 38 years, is that he was a regular guy and could relate to people like a regular guy and didn't act like some rock star, like some pastors of some big churches. Some churches like to put a green room in the back behind the pulpit so the pastor, he hides back there, he comes out on the stage and he preaches a sermon and he goes back in there where the, I guess they have fruit platters and, and 42 degree water and individually wrapped cashews. I don't know what's back there, but some churches have that. And I love the fact that we don't have that here. It's like we're not going to have this pretense about the pastor and he's so special. And so I appreciate that about him. But pastors should be more like farmers and less like rock stars. A ministry should point beyond itself. A good sermon always should point beyond itself and point you to Jesus. I think we get sucked into thinking that we're this big deal and we're just not. And Paul compares this to, you're just, you're just pouring water on a seed. You're just putting seed in the ground. There ain't nothing special about me. I mean, God causes the growth. And at times, it can be slow, and you can't see quick results. But God's doing a miracle. God's, God's causing that growth to happen. On the other hand, we don't want to diminish the work. 
Because if the farmer never puts the seed in the ground and the farmer never puts water on the seed, what happens? Nothing. And so God has also set it up in his grace where we get to participate in the work with him. He's causing the growth, but he's given us some things to do. And it matters that we do those things and it matters how we do those things. How we do the work matters. This passage is not saying that leadership doesn't matter or spiritual gifting doesn't matter because elsewhere, Paul writes about qualifications for being a deacon or an elder, and he says that the character of a leader matters. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, about spiritual gifts. Everyone's gifted differently, and that should be accounted for whenever people lead. If someone's not gifted at mercy, they probably shouldn't be in roles that require that. If someone's not gifted at teaching, they probably should not be in that role. And so gifting matters, and leadership matters a great deal. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. I think of a couple years ago, as a staff, we have, every other year we'll go somewhere in the U.S., and we'll go visit churches, or we'll go to a conference together as a staff to sharpen what we do here. And we went to Atlanta, Georgia a couple years ago as a staff, met with some church leaders there. And one stop we decided to make while we were there was we're going to go visit the headquarters of Chick-fil-A and just understand like how their culture as a company and, and understand how they reach out with their community partners in all of their store locations. And so it was a great visit, a really cool opportunity. So we go and we set up this, this visit with them and we're in their headquarters and the guy giving us the tour of the place, he takes us to the floor that was this I don't know how special it was, but it was a special floor. And he said, uh, so this is where our CEO is meeting right now with um, these people. And we look through this glass wall, and he's in there. The guy that's like the son of the owner, Dan Cathy, is in there talking to some people. And so he can see us as a group. And so the CEO waves us into the conference room. And so we go in there, and he just wants to know, hey, where are you guys from? And we're telling him where we're from, why, why we're in Atlanta, and those sorts of things. And the guy begins just sharing, this is the CEO of Chick-fil-A, begins sharing with us his passion and what they're working on right now as a company. And, and the guy is so passionate for his company and for the people that work for his company. And the guy starts crying. He's getting emotional about chicken sandwiches. And you really saw that this is, this is why whenever you walk into a Chick-fil-A, it just feels different. There's this corporate culture that comes from the top. And so listen, leadership matters. Gifting matters. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. That's not the point I think that Paul's trying to make here. I think Paul's trying to say leadership matters, but don't let it divide you. Don't do what the Corinthians are doing and, and pick factions and, and have strife and jealousy against each other and let those things divide you. You know, if we saw these two men today, Paul and Apollos, do you know we'd get them confused? You know, Paul's the one that we know. We think of Paul like this Christian celebrity. And if he were here, if Paul came in here, we would say, all right, Dave, you're going to be done with the sermon. Let Paul finish the sermon. We'd invite Paul up here on the stage to finish. Let, let Paul preach the sermon. But according to Paul's own words and the Bible's words, Paul wasn't a very good preacher, but Apollos was. 
When Apollos preached, the place was, was packed out. Not the case for Paul. If we held a church conference, Apollos would be the keynote speaker. Paul would have maybe led a breakout session. You see, the irony here is that the preachers that Corinth loved are barely known to us today, but the one they overlooked, Paul, is the one that we know. And why is that? Because God had different assignments for different men. It's really easy today to get caught up in the competition game in the ministry world, but God has different assignments for different people, but it should not lead to this competition or strife or jealousy. Warren Wearsby says, A mature Christian uses his gifts as tools to build with, while an immature believer uses gifts as toys to play with or trophies to boast about. Many of the members of the Corinthian church enjoyed showing off their gifts, but they were not interested in serving one another and edifying the church. Everyone in the body of Christ is gifted differently, and that is God's wisdom God doesn't want any one person getting all the glory. He wants to get the glory, and so he divides up the gifts in the body of Christ so that everyone's working together, but he ultimately gets the glory. But you and I, we still find ways to make sure that there's jealousy and strife and rivalries, but in the church, these things should lead to partnership and cooperation and collaboration, not rivalries and dissension. Look at Verse 8, it says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There are times when factions arise because the leaders are immature and the leaders have fostered those kinds of things, but that is not the case here. Paul is saying that he and Apollos are one. He's saying, me and Apollos, we're good, we're we're, we're unified, And I wish that you all would be as unified as me and Apollos are. If we see one farmer putting a seed in the ground, another farmer coming along and watering that seed, we don't start picking sides and saying, which person's the most important? Which person played the most important role? We we don't do that with farm work. And so Paul's saying, why why are you doing that in the church? We're on the same team. We're heading in the same direction. We're working for a common cause. We need to see the cause as much bigger than the workers themselves. So Paul is saying, Apollos and I are one. I wish you would follow our example. And so then if you look at verse 9 again, it, it tells us how do we avoid, how we can avoid jealousy and strife in the body of Christ. Paul is saying we have to see, we need to see the leaders and the people in the proper light. We've got to see the leaders of the church as simply God's fellow workers, servants. Do you know the word, Greek word for servant in this passage is the same word that we use for deacon today, It's not the word doulos like some have associated with other passages, but it's the word like deacon, which is also could be translated like table waiter. So for anyone, myself, anyone who's a leader in the church, we start to think that we're a big deal. We're table waiters here to serve 
the church. See ourselves as servants, not rock stars. We've got to see the people as God's field and God's building. So Paul's been using this farming analogy, but now he switches to architecture. And we always say in, in our world today that the church isn't a building, and that's, we've been reminded of that the last six months. But Paul says the church is a building. It's just not the kind that we thought it was. It's a spiritual building being constructed by God. And notice the emphasis on possession here. He says you are God's field, you're God's building, so the church is his possession. It doesn't belong to any one preacher or teacher or leader. The whole thing belongs to him. In Corinth, there were many buildings that had these inscriptions on them. And sometimes they were just the title of what the building, what the function of the building was. Other times it was someone's name, the benefactor, someone who put up money for a certain building like they would today. And Paul might be alluding to that when he says the statement, you are God's building. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, my name's not on your building. Apollos' name isn't on your building. God's name is on the building. You belong to him. And the same, I think, is true for us here, that we are, we are his possession. We belong to him. If we're, if we're like a spiritual building, his name is on us, and we are the building that he's constructing and putting together. And it's a spiritual building that he is in full possession of. And there isn't one person, not one human, that can lay claim to that. And so I don't mean to belabor this point and make all of our sermons here the last few weeks about COVID, but if the last six months have taught me anything, it's that I cannot find my identity in a ministry position or a leadership position. My position is in Christ. I think all of us struggle with consumer Christianity to some extent. Leaders do it. We know that you do it. But we can't find our identity in some kind of position. And listen, I mean, everyone here knows this. The church hasn't been so consumer-friendly lately, has it? I mean, there's a lot of hoops you got to jump through to get in here right now. And you're not, you're not very comfortable right now as, it, as you sit here. It's not the most convenient thing right now. We know that the coronavirus has done a lot of killing these last few months. But might God use it to also kill off consumer Christianity and help us understand what the church is supposed to be about and how it really should be? You know, when Paul came to Corinth, he said back in chapter 1, he said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying, I stripped it down completely to the, to the basic essentials, and I gave you the basic essentials of the gospel, Jesus, the gospel, the cross, and I stripped it down so that, that you would not miss the power of the cross. So maybe this stripped down state is exactly where God wants us to be as a church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. You're a God who cares for us. We thank you that you're a God who 
wants us to not miss just the power of the cross, the power of the gospel. And God, you put us in situations where we've got to strip things down to the basic essentials so that we can find joy right where it should be found once again. And God, I pray for all those that are gathered here in this, in this room. We know that many are coming from different backgrounds, different um, faith journeys, and we pray, God, that wherever they're coming from, that you would meet them right where they're at, knowing that when they meet you, you want growth for them, knowing when they come into relationship with you, that you want them to be changed and transformed and to grow. God, I pray for anyone here that's not yet a believer. I pray that they would put their life in your hands and and put their faith and trust in you and your finished work on the cross and come to know you and enter that relationship with you this evening. God, I pray for those that are believers but they're struggling. I pray that you would help them to surround themselves with other believers and communities so that they can begin to mature in their faith. God, show them areas of their life that you want them to grow in and mature in. And I pray that the body of Christ can be a mechanism for them as they seek to grow in their walk with you, Father. We just praise you for your grace and your mercy in our lives, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.